0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. What causes Parkinson's disease is still unclear, but scientists point to links with environmental exposures. And a recent study of twins suggests two common chemicals may play a major
1: role. We found that the twin who was exposed to a compound called trichloroethylene, or TCE, had a more than six fold increased risk of having Parkinson's disease than their unexposed co twin. Also, the
0: Asian carp is invading the Great Lakes. Now there's a new line
2: on coping with these unwanted fish. Eat them. Carp's a four letter word, and if people think carp and they think of grandpa's carp. Even though we know they're overfished the rest of the world, we don't have a big desire here in the U.S. to eat big head and silver carp. Taking a bite out of the Asian carp
0: and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield
0: Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. A recent study adds to the growing evidence and controversy about the possible health effects from the natural gas drilling method known as hydraulic fracturing. Researchers from the Colorado School of Public Health monitored fracking wells in the state for three years and found that many were emitting toxic hydrocarbons, including benzene, toluene, and xylene. The researchers say this may contribute to, quote, acute and chronic health problems for those living near the sites. The findings in Colorado would seem to support residents in Pennsylvania who live near fracking wells and claim the drilling process has made them sick. But as Reed Frazier of the public radio program The Allegheny Front reports, the evidence isn't conclusive.
4: How'd you do? Good. Not too bad.
5: No. Amy Perret is a plastic surgeon. She does lifts and tucks and breast implants. Today, she's taking sutures out of a patient who had a mole removed.
4: I'll just—I may put a little bit of peroxide in there to dry it off a little bit, okay. and I'll take the cosmetic
5: procedures like this. Out. Patients are Perret's specialty, so it's remarkable that she finds herself in the middle of a public health debate. It started about two years ago.
6: We started to have um,
4: more patients that would have open areas or recalcitrant lesions that bled, ulcerated, didn't quite heal, and usually they're on your face.
5: Paré's first concern was skin cancer, so she took biopsies of the patients.
4: And when we would send them off to the lab, they wouldn't come back as a cancer, but they wouldn't come back normal.
5: On top of the skin problems, the patients had headaches and were acting lethargic.
4: And then we thought, well, are these patients exposed to anything? And so then we would ask the patients if they were exposed to anything at work or at home.
5: It turned out many of these patients had one thing in common. They all lived near Marcellus Shale gas wells. Paré's practice is in Washington County, south of Pittsburgh, where over 500 wells have been drilled so far. Paré asked her patients to take a urine test.
4: Unfortunately, we did find quite a few people that did have um, urine that had methane in it, toluene, hypocuric acid.
5: All of which could have come from natural gas drilling. What to do about these patients, and discerning whether gas drilling is indeed the culprit, is a question doctors and public health scientists are grappling with. Ralph Schmeltz is with the Pennsylvania Medical Society. It represents 18,000 doctors in the state. The group thinks fracking for Marcellus Shale could have public health impacts.
1: But there's a lot that we don't know and a lot we need to learn about exactly what they are.
5: What he means is there's not much science yet that answers the question of whether fracking is safe. The industry says it is, and can point to reports by state governments in Texas and Pennsylvania that find no evidence that fracking pollutes groundwater. On the other hand, a growing number of case studies have documented people near gas wells getting sick. But these studies are hardly definitive, says Jean Finkel. She's an epidemiologist at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York City.
4: I am certainly not saying that these people don't have something wrong with them. I'm sure they do.
5: The problem, she says, is that good old statistical axiom, correlation does not imply causation. That means that a headache could come from toxic fumes, but it could just as easily come from stress or some other factor. What's needed are long-term studies that look at a variety of questions, Finkel says.
4: We have to look at biological plausibility. Is the disease that we're seeing biologically plausible based on what we know about the potential compounds that are in the uh, drilling process? And how strong is the association between exposure to risk and development of disease?
5: Many are calling for the creation of a health registry for Marcella Shale, that would list people who say they've gotten sick from fracking. It would be used as a basis for future health risk studies. Last year, state lawmakers earmarked $2 million from the proposed Marcella Shale impact fee to fund a registry. However, that money was stripped out of the bill before a final vote. Even without impact fee funding, several Shale-related health projects have sprouted in recent months. Among these efforts is the Southwestern Pennsylvania Environmental Health Project. Resource center that's going to be looking at gas drilling impacts. Rena Ripple runs the center. It's funded by philanthropies, including the Heinz Endowments, which also funds the Allegheny Front. The center opened in February in a suburban medical office building just south of Pittsburgh. The office isn't much to look at, just a few plants and a TV in the waiting room. But the center is the first of its kind a medical outreach program specifically designed to treat people near gas wells. We're going to the people who we believe have probably been impacted. So, you know, are these people who are in proximity to a gas drilling site or gas drilling activities, and are they experiencing significant health concerns? And we want to provide them with a response. Much of the response will be to refer patients to the appropriate physician. The center will compile patient information for scientists to study. But that's not the project's primary function. We're serving this population. We are not studying. We're not researching. That's not what we're doing. What it is doing is helping people like June Chapel. Chapel and a group of her neighbors in Hopewell Township in Washington County leased their land for drilling. The company they leased to, Range Resources, built an impoundment behind Chapel's house to store water produced from fracking. The water in ponds like this often contain chemicals, used to break up the shale, as well as heavy metals and salts that it picks up underground. Chappell says when she came home, she could smell the pond even before she got to her house.
4: The only way I can explain it is, it smelled like if you were sitting in your car with a gasoline can.
5: At the time, Chappell's husband, Dave, was suffering from cancer. He began to develop nosebleeds. She thought they were from his chemotherapy. Then she started getting nosebleeds, too then a ringing in her ears.
4: It almost sounds like um, when you go to a, like a real loud concert and you're there, and then the next day your ears are just like... Wah, 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 that. That's what it sounds like, but this just
5: never stops. Chapel complained to Range Resources. The company removed the frack pond. Matt Pizzarella, a range spokesman, says the company probably shouldn't have put the impoundments so close to Chapel's house. He also said that any odors were probably due to stagnant water, not pollution. And he disputed the claim that the wells could have made Chapel sick. Chapel's husband, Dave, lost his fight with cancer two years ago. But she's now worried for her own health.
4: And I don't know what my health is going to be. You know, I was exposed to these chemicals for over a year. We had our windows open. I had like a blue film on my mirrors. You know, we were breathing this stuff in.
5: In spite of reports from people like Chapel, some doctors think fracking is safe. C.N. Porbin has a small practice in Avella, Pennsylvania, in Washington County. The town is surrounded by wells. I've been looking for it for the past three years, and I haven't seen a thing. I think the big story here, so far as with all the hype, is that there is no story. Poor ben himself has leased gas rights to his property. He sees the gas rush as a boon to this old coal town, and he wonders if health complaints aren't driven by a profit motive. Horbin's also worried scientists looking for harmful impacts from fracking could find evidence of a problem where none actually exists. Still, he says he'll keep his eyes open. He signed on to work with the newly opened Environmental Health Center.
1: The potential here is that everyone is supposed to win. The farmers getting the royalties, the subway shops that have that are full at lunch, the little gas stations, The everyone's winning here. And no one wants to see anyone get sick. Uh, you got to watch it, though.
5: We are. Among those who figure to be winning and watching are Kathy and Guy of Olio. On a recent day, they took me to see the well Chesapeake drilled on their property three years ago. It sits on a large pad behind their home on what had been a rolling hillside. The couple also live in Avella, on a 600-acre farm with a koi pond and a chicken coop. They have three kids. It's not a stretch to say the well has become almost another family member, complete with its own nickname.
4: The kids call it college. They do. Our kids will say, hey, that's college out there.
5: Guy Avolio is an urgent care physician. He's heard and read reports of water contamination from fracking, but he's convinced that drilling is the right thing to do. He's very concerned about America's energy independence. The Avolios don't drink their well water, but they do have it tested every few months just in case. The water, says Kathy Avolio, is safe.
4: I would never put my kids, no matter what price tag you put on it, would I ever put my kids in harm's way. But I also feel like my husband does. I mean, we have to try to get this. I mean, this is an incredible
5: technology. Gaia Volio grew up in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, where his dad was a steelworker. He remembers when the mills were booming.
6: He always says, you know, the cars were dirty, the streets were dirty. But at least everybody
5: had a job. The scene they see now in front of their house is one of economic prosperity. And their family is healthy. For the Evolios, the benefits of shale outweigh the risks, whatever they may be. For Living on Earth, I'm Reed Frazier.
0: Our story on the suspected health effects of fracking comes to us by way of the Pennsylvania public radio program, The Allegheny Front. Just ahead, go fish. A taste of how a problem might become an asset. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Parkinson's disease afflicts some 700,000 Americans. The disorder often causes tremors and an unsteady gait. Parkinson's disease is often linked to environmental exposures. And now comes news that among the possible causes of the disease is a common workplace chemical. Joining me to talk about the emerging research is Dr. Samuel Goldman, one of the authors. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. Your study is really interesting. You looked at twins, and you looked at twins where one brother has the Parkinson's disease and and one doesn't, and you uh, then reconstructed a detailed uh, work history for them, any place they'd worked for more than six months since they were 10 years old. What did you find?
1: We found that the twin who was exposed to a compound called trichloroethylene, or TCE, had a more than six-fold increased risk of having Parkinson's disease than their unexposed co-twin. And then there were were also some other solvents that we looked at as well, including one called PERC, or perchloroethylene, which is the most common dry cleaning solvent, and that was also associated with a markedly increased risk of Parkinson's.
0: What if they had been exposed to TCE
1: or PERC? Exposure to TCE or PERC was associated with a nearly nine-fold increased risk of Parkinson's disease. I mean, that's
0: a that's a startling number, isn't it? You must have been pretty excited to see this.
1: Well, excited, dismayed. We've always believed that the vast majority of Parkinson's disease is a consequence of environmental risk factors, but I. it's important to recognize that this is a single study, so replication of our results is really important at this point before we can progress to being really certain that this is a, a causal link. Talk to me a bit about these chemicals, TCE. Now, let's try chloroethylene. What does it do? TCE is uh, extremely widely used. It still is, but not, not so much as 30 years ago. So it would be used now primarily for degreasing of metal parts in manufacturing And, in fact, it's in a broad range of consumer products and has been for decades. And, and actually, up through the 1970s, TCE was used to decaffeinate coffee. It's been used as a general anesthetic. It was in wide use during the 1940s and 1950s and primarily as an obstetrical anesthetic, strangely. So tell me a
0: bit about how you did design this study. You got almost 100 sets of twins?
1: Correct. Well, we've been following this cohort of twins since the early 90s, and then that's a very powerful study design to be able to look at environmental risk associations with disease. Why? Because, because twins are, if they're identical twins, they're genetically identical. And if they're fraternal twins, they're at least genetically very similar. So we're able to remove the genetic background effect from the equation and focus specifically on differences in environmental exposures. Now, what were
0: the most common occupations for the people who got sick?
1: The most common occupational exposure settings for TCE and PERC were among electricians and dry cleaners, as well as people who repaired industrial machinery and artists. Artists? Artists use solvents commonly.
0: Of course, art is a career. It's also a hobby. What hobbies were people most at risk of getting Parkinson's from this toxic exposure?
1: The hobbies that we observed were people working in carpentry, artists, again, people who worked in photography in particular. But... Oftentimes, it's in the household settings where exposure levels can be exceedingly high because there is no one enforcing a, a regulatory uh, maximum of protective uh, equipment in the home. So, Dr. Goldman, if somebody came into your
0: office today and said, "Gee, read your study," want you to know that you know I worked at an aircraft uh, engine repair place and you know I was up to my elbows every day in TCE.
1: I'm fine today
0: what would you tell him he could do to help keep from getting Parkinson's?
1: I would love to be able to offer some advice, but currently there really is no way that we're aware of to delay or prevent Parkinson's disease. I think the most important thing we can do right now is to replicate this observation, and if it's found to be consistently observed, link between exposure to these compounds and Parkinson's disease, I would hope that the funding agencies would really get behind this work and help us move it forward. And what are we to make of the fact that so many
0: environmental contaminants seem to be linked or even perhaps cause Parkinson's disease? Uh, there are earlier studies that have shown that several pesticides cause it by destroying brain cells. And, and research also points to what, some heavy metals like manganese?
1: Uh, to me, as a, an investigator uh, for many years in Parkinson's disease, I am really shocked at the paucity of environmental factors that we've been able to identify. Paucity? Too few? I would like to know what causes Parkinson's disease. So I feel like we've really only begun to scratch the surface of identifying risk factors for Parkinson's disease. What's really interesting about Parkinson's is that there are very few naturally occurring disease clusters when you find a cluster, it's a good sign that there's likely to be a shared environmental determinant in those people. But there are very few naturally occurring clusters of Parkinson's disease. So that implies that the environmental factors that go into causing Parkinson's disease are likely spread out over a very long period of time and may be different in everyone. So what we've been able to link so far is, as you pointed out, several pesticides have been linked, but only a couple, paraquat, an herbicide, and rotenone, an insecticide. As someone who works in this field for many years, I'm somewhat discouraged at the small number of environmental compounds that have been definitively linked with Parkinson's disease.
0: What you're saying to me is that Parkinson's disease as a, as a disorder might be akin to, if you'll forgive me, a broken leg. In other words, you could break a leg skiing, you could be in a car crash, you could fall over in your garden, you could get hit by a door, that it's the endpoint of any number of processes.
1: That's absolutely right. I think that we'll find that there are many environmental insults that ultimately coalesce To result in Parkinson's disease, but that in any given individual, the, the route to get to that point is different. Sam Goldman, thanks so much for talking with us today. Well, it's been a real pleasure, and thanks for your interest in our work. Sam
0: Goldman is a physician and public health researcher with the Parkinson's Institute in Sunnyvale, California. He was part of a team whose research appeared in the Annals of Neurology. The Asian carp has invaded the Mississippi River system. As the fish encroaches on the Great Lakes, scientists, entrepreneurs, and community organizers are coordinating efforts to pull this fish out of the rivers and onto our plates. Ike Sreeskandaraja investigates what needs to happen to take
7: a bite out of the invasive Asian carp. On a warm afternoon, I met Kevin Irons in the parking lot of a Holiday Inn in Bolingbrook, Illinois, about 30 miles from Chicago. Irons runs the Aquatic Nuisance Species Program for the state of Illinois and just came out of meetings with biologists and commercial fishermen. He agrees to show me why they met in this small town.
2: As we drive out here, we're going to park at the end of this road.
7: Irons drives a few miles away from the hotel and turns onto a dusty service road that cuts through two thin bodies of water.
2: It's on essentially the shores of the Death Plains River. To our right, is where the Chicago Sanitarian Ship Canal exists.
7: The Chicago Sanitarian Ship Canal is man-made, carved into bedrock to save a city from its own sewage 100 years ago. The river moves waste from the city and is the only shipping link for cargo between the Mississippi and the Great Lakes. The Des Plaines River is natural
2: a very slow river. Uh, We see aquatic vegetation and shorebirds. We see a fishing egret out here. So even though we're very close to Chicago, you feel kind of remote. You can see why people want to spend some time out here. You may also get a sense for why people are so concerned about Asian carp.
7: Not far from here, the invasive Asian carp are more densely populated than anywhere in the world. And if they made it across this 30-foot wide service road from river into canal, they would be on their way to Lake Michigan. Two Asian carp varieties, bighead and Silver, are the most proficient water invaders. They exist on nearly every continent. They're highly adaptive, reproduce quickly, and eat a ton of plankton. That's why scientists like Irons are sounding the alarm.
2: It takes a biologist a while to convince other people, and we have to consider everything. That's why the pictures, the movies have been so valuable to us. If I say there's a lot of fish, what does that mean? If you see a picture of 100 fish jumping out of the water around a boat, oh, that's a lot of fish.
7: Asian carp are infamous for jumping at the hum of a motorboat. YouTube has made them the poster child for invasive species.
6: Here we go. The land of the jumping carp. Here we are. Hang on. Look at them,
5: Fred. Look. Dear Lord. Oh, my Lord. Look at that. I knock my hat off.
7: The kamikaze fish, averaging 35 pounds, can break bones and knock people unconscious. In the mid-'70s, catfish farmers in the South imported Asian carp to eat the scum off their ponds. But flooding soon washed the fish into the Mississippi. The schools moved north up the Mississippi system and were first found in the Illinois River 25 years ago. Now they are more here than ever. Illinois is fighting the carp occupation with electrified barriers, vigilant river patrols, and DNA sweeps. The White House has even appointed a carp czar But there's a secret weapon that has not yet been deployed. A strategy invasive insiders call, when you can't beat them, eat them.
2: Commercial fishing may be that one tool that can remove enough fish, I mean, millions of pounds consistently.
7: But so far, that tactic is unused, only because Americans have a prejudiced palate against the carp.
2: Carp's a four-letter word, and people think carp and they think of grandpa's carp. Even though we know they're overfished the rest of the world, we don't have a big desire here in the U.S. to eat big head and silver carp. The common carp is a bottom feeder,
7: living off mud and bugs, and it's notoriously strong smelling. The Asian carp lives near the top of the water and is a planktivore. And some biologists swear it's
2: good eating. I've eaten it several times. It's very good. One of the best tasting fish products maybe in the world. In fact, Illinois is working with a program we call um, Target Hunger Now, or Feeding Illinois, trying to get this fish product into places like food shelters.
7: Over the past year, the Illinois Department of Natural Resources has been working with food banks to channel this river of protein towards urban food deserts and hungry people across the state. I met with Tracy Smith, the director of Feeding Illinois, outside a safe haven shelter in Chicago. Smith oversees a network of eight food banks that moved 127 million pounds of food last year to soup kitchens, food pantries, and shelters, like the one we're at. This year, Feeding Illinois is stretched thin.
6: One of the things that strikes me in every part of the state that we go to, they all talk about an increase in demand and decreasing federal and state support. Every single pantry that we've walked into has said, look at my empty shelves, this is a crisis situation. The
7: food banks are especially short on protein. That's where the Department of Natural Resources partnership comes in. The program Target Hunger enlists deer hunters to supply fresh meat.
6: Yes. We do already, the food banks and the food pantries work with Department of Natural Resources to do a venison program, and we get about 100,000 pounds of venison out of that program a year.
7: But Asian carp is a completely different animal.
6: Uh, No, the scale would be much larger. So we're looking at much larger. 100,000 pounds in the scope of 127 million that are distributed is pretty small. In addition, because it's not being consumed widely, uh, there's an education component. Is it something that clients are going to accept? The worst thing is to have food that people don't want to eat.
7: So feeding Illinois with help from the DNR and the culinary world gave food bank clients a taste of carp cuisine. I met three safe haven residents who were at the tasting. Susan Harper, Michelle Miles, and Willie Rimpson were initially biased against the fish. But could taste triumph over reputation?
5: Yeah, the way they prepared
1: it, you know, it was almost like a salmon croquette with a lemon sauce on it, and I thought it was great. I think it's something that they could serve at H.J. Pavin, that'll bring a lot of protein and
5: um, some taste into our menu. I think it'd be a wonderful idea. And, and you? I thought it was good.
7: Though Not everyone took to it. That carp croquette was not my
3: liking. It was just a strong, fishy taste to it, you know. I actually wouldn't go and buy it. No, not now, not that I've had it, you
7: no. Know? But Harper and Miles said they would look for Asian carp at the grocery store.
1: Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, I would, if I knew how to cook it right, I would serve it.
7: So how easy is it to cook? I ordered a few pounds from a place that catches and processes Asian carp, Schaefer's Fishery in Illinois. They sell it ground-up hamburger style. My package arrived in a white Styrofoam box with one-pound vacuum-packed units that looked like biomedical waste. But fried up with some seasoning, rolled into a taco, it tastes more like meat than fish. It seems that this protein has promise. That's why Tracy Smith, back at Feeding Illinois, is figuring out the business of getting this product into the pantries.
6: The unique thing about Asian carp is that they're not using it commercially in the United States right now. And so in order to use it for humanitarian purposes, a whole infrastructure really has to be built up to do it.
7: That means hiring fleets of fishermen, processors, distributors.
6: You also have to pay people well enough that it's worth it for them to get involved in that process.
7: And for that to happen, there has to be enough people who want to eat this stuff. But how do you sell something that has a bad reputation? Well, that's what marketers do.
1: What do I do specifically? uh, High-level creative strategy. High-level creative strategy.
7: Yeah. Brock Haldeman is the president and CEO of Pivot Design, a Chicago firm that builds brands. I wanted to know what a carp campaign might look like. So before we met, I sent him a dossier of facts that I thought would be helpful, like how carp's a lean protein, high in omega 3, low in mercury. It's likely the most environmentally friendly meat around. But Haldeman told me selling this fish has little to do with the facts.
1: I mean, the stigma is really the name. There's lots of examples in sort of the the food world of taking a horrible-sounding fish name, give it a new name, and and actually make them very popular.
7: Ever heard of Patagonian toothfish? One L.A.-based fish importer in the 70s found this little-known undervalued fish. He renamed it Chilean sea bass and sold it to restaurants around the world. Now it's nearly fished out of existence. Some carp cheerleaders want to reintroduce carp as silverfin, Then marketers like Haldeman would erase Asian carp from memory. But to pull off this level of brand rollout, to make Asian carp, I mean, silverfin, the new turkey dinner,
1: it'll cost you. Uh, a lot. It's probably, you know, a six-figures effort. Six-figures sounds
7: like a lot, but these invaders threaten the commercial and recreational interests of the Great Lakes, a nine-figure value. Millions of dollars can buy influence, evangelists, to push your product into the market. I asked Midwestern rapper Juicebox if he could put the message to music.
5: Throw it to the song. Don't call it
8: carp, don't call it carp. Don't call it-
1: But no, you're you're not going to use. There'd be no references to carp ever. You basically have to say goodbye to that name and reintroduce this product with its new name.
5: All right.
7: If marketers, fishermen, biologists, and a rapper have their way, it might not be too long before there's a silverfin invading a grocery store near you. For living on Earth, I'm Ike Sweetcom You heard Don't Call It Carp from Juice Box.
0: Coming up, tell me, O oh octopus, I begs, is those things arms? Or is they legs? We'll have a story that we're sure will grab you. Stay
3: tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
0: You're listening to a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Americans waste a lot of food. We throw away a staggering 68 billion pounds of food each year, most of which winds up in municipal landfills. Composting is one solution to the problem, but it's not always easy, especially if you live in a city. But now some urban dwellers in Massachusetts can compost without the dirty work, producing nutrient-rich material that can be added to the soil and enriching a young entrepreneur at the same time. Living on Earth, Jessica Elise Kern has our story.
9: It's late afternoon, and Catherine Nyanyema stands in her second-floor apartment kitchen. The Somerville resident grabs a colander, washes vegetables, and lays them out on the counter. So I'm making dinner, and I'm cutting up my Brussels sprouts. Also on the menu, sweet potatoes, asparagus, and ground lamb. Yanyama cuts off the vegetable ends and pushes them into a pile on her wooden cutting board. Normally, all these ends I would just throw in the trash, but I'm going to take them and just put them in this five-gallon bucket that we keep right next to our butcher's block. In the ideal world, Yanyama would have the time and space to throw these scraps in a backyard compost heap. But her neighborhood is dense, her backyard small. She finds the logistics of composting overwhelming. Like if I had to go and start up a compost bin in my my backyard, I don't know if I would do it, or I don't know if I would know how to do it. Now composting is part of Yanyama's routine, thanks to a new startup business. I just feel like it should be a part of anyone's kind of environmental protocol. If they're recycling, then composting is, is really not that hard, especially with somebody like Andy. Andy is Andy Brooks, a young entrepreneur who founded Bootstrap Compost, a kitchen scrap pickup company. Brooks travels around greater Boston mostly by bike, and collects organic waste for customers like Yan Yama. He then brings it to a local farm for composting.
8: Through composting our material, we are collectively improving our community.
9: The idea of helping the community was his inspiration, and he had another motivation. A college grad Brooks was getting frustrated after searching endlessly for jobs.
8: After like relying on this cruel economy (laughs) of like applying and cover letters and resumes and interviews and nothing was going anywhere for like two years. And I was like, forget it. I got to do something for myself and the whole notion of like picking myself up. And so Bootstrap
9: Compost was born. Brooks says there are many reasons why he loves helping urbanites compost.
8: When people ask me that question, it's like someone saying like, why do you like Star Wars or why are the Beatles good? I get dizzy. Like, there's so many reasons. The way that sort of interests me is, like, what are the challenges that we face being a disposable society? Brooks
9: puts on his helmet and jumps on his souped-up bicycle, complete with a custom-made trailer that tags behind. Such a setup couldn't have been designed for anything other than a nomadic compost business.
8: It's super beautiful, I have to say. It's, like, it's all aluminum, and then um, a real, real simple, uh, thin sort of... Um, barrier, like, around it to keep everything inside of it. It's got two um, super nice 10-speed wheels of, like, a reinforced axle, so it's super sturdy. I mean, it looks pretty awesome.
9: Six empty buckets sit in the trailer. They'll soon be swapped with pails filled with carrot tops, banana peels, and other scraps. Bootstrap Compost currently serves several dozen customers and is growing. Brook's destination today? The Boston neighborhood, Jamaica Plain. He grabs an empty bucket and climbs up to the porch of a triple-decker house where a filled-to-the-brim pail is waiting.
8: So, pretty, like, exemplary contents here, you know, for someone's food scraps. It looks like there's some kale here and um, some sort of, like, gourd or something. I don't even know what that is.
9: How heavy do you suppose that is?
8: Um, I would say this is probably at least 10 pounds. It's probably a bit more.
9: Brooks pedals to three more sites, and each time his load grows heavier. So heavy that on his way to the fifth and final stop, he has to push the bike and trailer up a huge hill.
8: Here is a pretty gnarly hill, but we can
1: walk it.
9: At the top of the hill, we reach a professional baker's house. This client fills two buckets a week.
8: She gives me, like, really nice stuff, like beautiful fruit and stuff.
9: Two buckets of apple cores, orange peels, and espresso grounds sit on the porch. A third bucket is there, too, filled with rich, dark compost that Brooks dropped off last week. He says his business is like a bank. Clients deposit their raw food scraps and then can withdraw fresh soil after 15 weeks. Customers that have no need for compost can opt to donate theirs to a local community garden. Brooks opens the bucket of fresh soil and smiles.
8: It's um, the end result of 7,000 pounds of material that I've collected since January. And this is uh, what you get when several months pass and you're, you're on top of it and you're mixing it. And this is what you get, you know, at the end of the day.
9: Bootstrap Compost operates year round. And when the weather's bad for biking, Brooks hops on the subway with a hand truck loaded with buckets. He offers three payment plans. A weekly pickup costs $32 a month, bi-weekly $18, and a once-a-month visit is $10. At the end of the day, Brooks loads the scraps into his pickup truck to be taken to the farm. He says he isn't trained in this field and hasn't always composted himself. He just came up with a business plan that works and has a passion for the environment.
8: When you throw out your banana peels into the trash, that to me, it's like insulting to all the resources that went into growing those things initially. The end product is just treated like refuse. But it shouldn't be. It still like harbors like this immense energy to be used for good and, and to go back into the cycle of growing.
9: His clients, like Catherine Yanyama, start to live by this ethos, too. You know, you, you really think about where your food is going, and especially on Trash Day, I'll look at people's trash and see, you know, is this one family? How many families are living in these homes? And how much do we generate as individuals? And on Trash Day, when a slight putrid smell hangs in the air, Andy Brooks is extra motivated to recruit more people to turn their food scraps into a useful product. For Living on Earth, I'm Jessica Elise Kern.
0: On a warm, sunny day, I visit the New England Aquarium to meet up with author Cy Montgomery, who has a new best friend. Now, Cy Montgomery, you've written a lot about really smart animals. In fact, you had one live with you. His name was Christopher Hogwood. He was a pig. And then um, when you went to the Amazon, you met these pink dolphins. I think maybe you fell in love with one of these pink dolphins, too.
4: Oh, I think I fell in love with all of the pink dolphins, Steve. (laughs)
0: And, of course, they're the golden moon bears that you track down in, in Southeast Asia. All very smart. And today we're at the New England Aquarium to meet another very smart animal, you tell us. And that would be a...
4: A giant Pacific octopus.
0: Uh, octopus? Uh, just one, though.
4: Yes. The problem is, if you put two together, they tend to eat each other.
0: Oh. And w- w- in more than one octopus, is this... Do you say octopuses or octopi or octopi? What do you do?
4: Unfortunately, it's now octopuses. It's because the plural octopi didn't go with the origin of the word octopus, so it's supposed to be octopuses.
0: Huh. So who are we going to meet today, Cy? Si?
4: We are going to meet a giant Pacific octopus named Octavia.
0: Octavia. And uh, this isn't, of course, your first time encountering these animals.
4: Well, no, I got to know Octavia's predecessor, whose name was Athena. I visited her three times. Athena, when we first met, was the most amazing thing. She came boiling up from her exhibit. Her arms started coming out... And I plunged my arms into the 57-degree water, which is actually very cold. And immediately, we were just embracing each other. Her suckers were all over me. I was petting her beautiful head. And I noticed that her skin would turn light-colored right underneath my touch. No way. And I knew that that's the sign of a contented octopus. An unhappy, angry octopus turns red and gets all pimply. But... She was showing her contentment and letting me touch her head. And after the encounter, which went on for a while, I was told by the wonderful folks at the New England Aquarium, they said, this is very unusual for an octopus to let someone, a stranger like you, touch her head. So we had an immediate bond. But I just met Octavia uh, last Friday And just from my short encounter with her, I can tell you she's very, very different from her predecessor, who was very different from her predecessor, who was different from his predecessor. They all are quite distinctive, just like we are, which is so surprising. These are, I think, the most surprising creatures, because unlike us, you know, they're completely without any bones. They're so unrelated to us in any way, and yet you can have a meaningful interaction with them. And that just blows my mind. I think you're going to love this.
0: Okay, well then let's go inside. Great. We head inside the aquarium, past the information desk and up some stairs. We go behind the labyrinth of exhibits and into a room full of tanks. This is a favorite place of staff biologist Bill Murphy. So Bill Murphy, this is your tank. This is your octopus. This is your world here. Yes, it is.
10: Back. This is the octopus tank, right over here with the lid on it. Now, let's see, scientifically this
0: is known as a cephalopod, in other yes. words, a head and foot yes. type thing? correct. But there are no bones in this, it's completely invertebrate, right? Correct. Yeah. The only hard part of it is its beak. Uh-huh, which is kind of like what? It's kind of like a parrot's beak. Yeah? So what's really unusual, though, about octopuses, aside from the fact they have eight arms, which we don't, and the fact that they don't have any bones, and we do... They're smart, though, like us, I'm told.
10: Yes. They are very intelligent, and they're also very curious, which also leads to, I would say, partly their intelligence. So just how
0: smart is an octopus?
10: Well, they can open lock boxes, which we do here at the aquarium. They can open pill bottles. They can turn valves. They can turn knobs. They can crawl through tubes to get to food. If they see food on the other side of the tank, they'll try and go towards it. There's um, been experience that I've heard about where if an octopus knows how to do a puzzle and open the box before, and another octopus is right next to it does not, the other octopus will actually watch. The one octopus knows how to do it, open it, and then learn it immediately. So they can observe and then learn. Now, if the two octopuses are together observing, but what about the risk of getting eaten by the other octopus? They were separated. they are different tanks. So well, they could see each other, but they couldn't get to each other.
6: Ah, okay.
10: Um, Sai, you told me that
0: octopuses don't really get along with each other very well.
4: Yeah, that's, that's kind of too bad. I mean, it's one reason why I don't think any aquarium has yet bred them in captivity, because they tend to eat each other. Yeah,
10: what, what is this about octopuses not liking each other? Uh, I think it's just more of also the aggressiveness of their, adi- of their attitude. When you're living on your own and fighting to survive, um, adding another octopus in there competing for the same source is also not a good thing.
0: Okay, so then how do they reproduce if they don't get along?
10: That comes at that time in their life. They reach a life cycle where they're ready to reproduce. Ready, the females are ready to lay eggs and mate. The males have reached their maturity and they're ready to mate and to move on. And the male still has to appease the female. He still has to do his dance and she still has to accept him for them to mate and then for them to move on and then she'll, hold, she'll lay her eggs and spend the rest of her life energy making sure those eggs stay safe and protected and hatch. So she doesn't live long after she lays eggs? Yeah. Correct. So once they lay eggs once, that's it for them. So an octopus will have how many young? Thousands. They lay strands of eggs that look like grains of rice, and they'll have probably easily a thousand eggs, if not more. And they'll most of them will hatch, but it's also the law of the wild. You lay a lot and produce a lot of offspring, but only a few will survive due to predators and food.
4: How would you describe how? Octavia differs from all the others since everyone's an individual. She's a little more
10: picky. She came to us probably a little bit older than what we normally get our octopuses because uh, the one before her, Athena, died unexpectedly. So we got one on from the wild from a collector that we talked to a lot. So she's straight from the wild and a little bit larger and more used to the wild nature than, than other ones are.
4: How much do you think she weighs and how big do you think
6: she is? Uh,
10: she's probably about 40 pounds and if you stand her up she's probably about four and a half feet oh, wow four and a half feet. so yes. she still has another year and a half i'd say to grow ah. and bill i guess you're the one really to take us to meet her anything i should say or do roll up your sleeves take off your watch right over this way Volunteer Wilson, he's uh, been with us for many, 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 many many years.
4: Oh, her beautiful arm is out.
10: And there she is. Oh, can I touch her? <laughs> Go for it.
4: Oh, man, stick your hand up here. I've got three arms on me.
0: Uh-oh, and she's, she's grabbing a hold here.
4: I've got, do you feel the suckers? Yeah,
0: feel the suckers. She's
4: tasting you yeah, with it. these as well as feeling you.
0: She can control each one of these suckers individually.
10: Yes.
0: Wow. Now this color she is right now, she's very red, does that mean she's happy?
4: You tell me.
10: Red is very normal and they kind of stay this way and they kind of get more flashes of darker reds and whites when they're uh, aggressive.
4: Look, there's the beak.
10: Uh Right where
4: all of her arms come together, Uh that's where her mouth is.
10: Uh how firm their arms are. Oh, yeah. Amazing, that's just all muscle. That's how solid it is. feels, like a steel cable, but it's just muscle. It shows you how strong they can be.
4: Her tentacles are coming just as fast as you can take them off. Give you a fish. Them. Now, watch this. Here comes the fish. Oop. Oh, she's holding sense. it with her sucker, and what she'll do is she'll pass it, if she wants to eat it, she'll pass it from sucker to sucker to sucker as it goes into her mouth. But she may just want to play with it or not want to do anything with it. Right now, she seems more interested in interacting with us than even eating the caveman. She's
2: coming out. She's
4: coming out of her exhibit.
3: She knows
10: where the food comes from, so she's grabbing the food bowl and trying to take it.
4: But she's not even hungry. She's just doing it for fun, isn't she? Yes, she is. This is so different from the first encounter that um, I had with her
0: So here's a creature that's smart, sentient, and looks nothing at all like us.
4: Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, when she touches you with those suckers, she is knowing your skin and probably your bones and probably your blood and your muscle in a way that no other animal will ever know you. That's what she's knowing when she touches you. And look how white she's going now, right under my touch. So she feels very calm. Very calm. I feel calm, too.
0: So I guess our time is up with Octavia. Wow.
4: Was that the greatest thing ever? Now (laughs) my hands are frozen, too. Oh, boy. You know, I didn't even... I did not even notice how cold it was.
0: Wow. So if an octopus is this smart, what other animals that are out there could be this smart
10: that we don't think of as being sentient and having personality and memory and all these things? It's a very good question. The ocean is a very undiscovered world, and there's a lot of animals out there we don't even know about. There's a lot of animals we don't know. We know they're there, but they don't know anything about them. Who knows what else is actually out there for the ocean?
0: Bill Murphy from the New England Aquarium, Cy Montgomery, thank you
10: both for being with me today. And Octavia,
0: Octavia, will you say something? I guess she's taking a nap after having lunch. Thank you both. No problem. Thank you.
4: Our pleasure.
0: That was writer Cy Montgomery, and we also heard from New England Aquarium marine biologist Bill Murphy, volunteer Wilson Manashi, and of course Octavia the Octopus. Cy Montgomery's article, Deep Intellect, Inside the Mind of the Octopus, was published in Orion Magazine. You can grab some links and photos on our website, loe.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, and Jeff Young, with help from Gabriella Romano and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Annabelle Ford and Annie Sneed. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding
3: for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making.